You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Today I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Kozak, who's the host of The Body Show, which airs on this station at 6.30 p.m. on Mondays. Dr. Kozak works at Straub Clinic and Hospital and is the medical director at UHA Health Insurance. Good morning. Good morning. Happy to be here. Yeah, so you uh, interview a number of physicians regularly, so you really hear a lot about what's happening out there in the community. Well, definitely, and a lot of folks have been really forthright about how they're concerned about what's going on with coronavirus and how it affects certain medical conditions. Those who have lung conditions, asthma, COPD, those who have other medical concerns that make them at high risk. These are all folks that are very worried, not just about their patients, but also about the community at large. And there is a lot of research uh, going on uh, in our state. Uh, joining us this morning by phone is Dr. Patrick Sullivan. He's the founder and CEO of Oceanit. Uh, the company has been around in Hawaii for some 35 years, and its mission is to implement innovative and sustainable engineering solutions. Good morning, Pat. Good morning, and it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I understand that uh, you have some trials that are underway with a new spit test. Right. Well, we've been working on a technology for the last six years, so it makes it look like we just started it, you know, a, a couple months ago. But we came up with a, an approach to design a molecule with a federal government program under DARPA, and uh, we created a tool set using um, artificial intelligence. And explain, so more human, Patrick. Human style intelligence. Patrick, can you explain to our listeners uh, what DARPA is? Yeah, DARPA is a Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. So we look at that as a high risk appetite. So when we're thinking things that might be otherwise considered crazy, uh, we talk to them, and they'll underwrite the risk. And so we had we had put together uh, an idea that we call anthropomorphic artificial intelligence back six years ago, another defense group to look at things like small data, human intelligence, dealing with ambiguity, and then we asked ourselves if we could apply an argument or conversation between uh, Plato and Aristotle between causality and correlation. Most medicine today is all about correlation. We thought if we could connect mathematically what actually goes on. So we started out looking at things like cancer, like why can't we cure cancer? And we developed a tool set. So we looked at genomics kind of like a language. If you look, you know, there's 3 billion base pairs, and it looks pretty interesting. But what if, in fact, it can tell us something if we could just read it? And so we put together what we refer to as kind of a linguistic Turing machine. And we integrated people like uh, Noam Chomsky, right, a famous linguist who kind of put the mathematics to uh, language and, you know, using the language as a model for human style intelligence. Anyway, with that, we produced a tool set to develop the grammar of RNA, which then gives us the ability to design it with purpose. So in this case, and by the way, we, we started this kind of a, I put together maybe a 10-year plan back in October on digital medicine, and um, we weren't planning to do anything like what we're doing now. But we thought, okay, with this tool set, which we demonstrated with DARPA, could we, in fact, uh, develop a solution faster, a molecule very specific to some piece of the COVID-19? 
So what we did was we took a piece of protein, and then we, we designed a molecule specifically to look for it, kind of like a, a lock-in key, but it fits on it when you look at it under a, a you know, with these simulations of a microscope. It'll look almost like a glove. And so it's very high binding affinity, very specific to it. And then what we do is we, we attach a little nanoparticle to it. And when you put it on a piece of paper, a strip of paper, it kind of flows through the paper, kind of like if you try to mop up, you know, I've got, a, I've got a new puppy. And so the puppy will occasionally pee, which happens. And so you, you take one of these um, napkins or, you know, a towel and you soak it up. We do the same thing. But what happens is with this molecule, it hooks onto this piece of COVID, and it's also hanging onto this nanoparticle, flows down this thing. It's, like a, it's called a lateral flow assay, but it, it basically then hooks onto a line on that assay, and it makes a line. So it works like a pregnancy kit. So you basically, uh, in our case, this is based on spit. So you spit in a cup, shake, put it in this in you know, 10 minutes or less, get a line that says you've got it or not. And so it makes it relatively robust. You don't have to no special equipment or tools or handling. Um, anybody can use it. There's issues, you know, on you know, things we're looking at now, like how do old people spit? You know, do young people spit too much? We're trying to do a, a kit for children, for example. You could use it at the airport. You could use it in a bunch of places. It's very inexpensive, too. Right. And so uh, we're here... We're hearing a lot about different types of spit tests that are being developed. Uh, we did uh, get a chance to talk with uh, the commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, Dr. Stephen Hahn. Uh, we talked to him, I believe, last week. Uh, and he was talking about the efforts underway with you know, vaccines and diagnostics. And at that time, the FDA had just given the okay for a new spit test. Here's what he had to say. We just authorized a uh, saliva collection approach for a test, which of course facilitates doing rapid testing, but also simplifies the collection procedures. What, what FDA does is that we work with the developers of tests, and we have since the beginning, to try to make the most reliable and efficient and quick tests we possibly can. But just to put it in perspective, the history of developing these rapid tests, it, it can take months, if not years, to develop. If you think about Ebola, HIV, um, flu, strep, etc., it took years to develop these tests. The great manufacturers in, in the United States and around the world develop these tests within weeks. And so we've seen a, a fairly rapid proliferation. We obviously need to do more in the testing, but they are very hard at work. And the American people can be assured that these folks are working 24-7 to get the best, most reliable, quickest tests out to them. And Patrick, are you the only one here in Hawaii that's working on a spit test? Well, I think here, but there are others around the country looking at and working on spit. There's several interesting similarities and differences. So first, it's absolutely true. Uh, and, it, you know, we did this what would be in two years. We did it in two months to get this put together, which is, you know, kind of crazy to begin with. But the, the way it's been done, so the a PCR test, which is what people are using generally today, has to be, uh, you take a nose sample, so you stick up uh, uh, what looks like a big Q-tip up the nose till you touch the brain, and then you run it in a machine called a PCR machine. It uses very special chemicals, and it takes hours and hours. And it's a forensic tool which works quite well, but now we've got a pandemic, and you need 
things rapidly. So what what they've done and what he's referring to is collecting spit. Turns out there's a lot of virus in spit, and so now you have a much simpler collection process. Well, I have taken that I have taken that nasal test and. I don't like it. It's quite uncomfortable. I don't know, Dr. Kozak, if you had to take that test. Well, there's a couple of different ones now. So there's the nasopharyngeal swab, the one that everybody says feels like it tickles their brain. It has to go back to a certain area because that's where the virus is most likely to inhabit. But then there's also a screening test called a nasal swab. So that one actually is not inserted anywhere near as deep to the nose. And that's usually done for people who don't have a lot of symptoms for whom they're about to have a procedure or they need to be in the hospital for some reason. The results on that come back a little quicker because it is not the same sensitivity or specificity as the PCR test. So it's not as accurate, but it's really good given what we're looking for before procedures. So, you know, the spit test, the curious thing I find when you talk about it, Patrick, is that that particular test will see if you have virus particles. And then the question that comes up clinically is, what does that do as far as your potential for infectivity? Would you, after having had the infection, still have some particles that would be available or be seen in the spit test that may not actually reflect active infection, in which case your body is still in the process of clearing it? You know, so there are some other clinical things that I think it's so fantastic that your group is working on. Let's develop the test. And then our job as doctors is to say, okay, when this test is positive, where is that in the framework of somebody having disease? And how can we interpret that? Even people who have already been positive, how long do they stay positive? What else does that help us to figure out? So it's it's going to be a great combination and coordination of efforts of everybody to work together on this. And I think today uh, we've got all the uh, surge testing that's happening uh, that the mayor, uh, Mayor Caldwell, uh, has organized. Uh, that's a tremendous effort to get a lot more of those tests done. Hopefully quickly on the H3. Yes, I know. Can you believe no, I, it? Absolutely. But you, you bring up a really important question. See, the, what a PCR test does, so the way a PCR works is it can constantly amplify the signal. So even if you've got a remnant, uh, you know, strand of RNA somewhere, it'll pick it up. And that's one of the great things about that test. When you're actually looking at this question of infectiousness, it's really not the tool to use. And the reason I say that is it will give you an answer, but you don't get an answer quick enough. And once you're exposed, your maximum sort of uh, infectiousness occurs right around five days, some maybe four, some six, generally around five. And when you model this thing, what you discover is that a lot of the PCR tests may be way beyond when you're actually infecting other people. So you could call that, people have been calling that right now a false positive. So they're saying, well, you came up positive, so, you know, you should stay home, which may be the right thing to do when you don't understand what's going on. But, in fact, your risk of infecting anybody is way long and gone. And infectiousness is kind of this zone. So I think what needs to happen is we don't know when you get infected. That's one of the big problems. But you infect family, friends, you know, and everybody around you unwittingly, almost, you know, in an asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic mode, almost 50% of the time. So the idea is you want, if you want to eliminate infectiousness, you need a rapid test. And it's, in this case, what we're looking at is a diagnostic test, although, you know, using it for screening makes a lot of sense. We're supposed to meet a sensitivity specificity that the FDA points out. 
the big difference between what we're doing and what everybody else is doing, you know, from an operational standpoint, is we want an over-the-counter test like a, uh, a pregnancy kit. Pretty much everything requires it goes to a CLIA lab, and a CLIA lab is like a specially certified lab. And like this Wash U test that just got authorized, uh, they're basically cutting out steps to go faster, which is really good. They're collecting saliva, which is way more convenient. But the fact is um, uh, you're still going to wait a while as you go through the lab. There's another test, which we've been in collaboration with, uh, University of Colorado Boulder is, is looking at rolling this out. It's like called a LAMP test, but it's the PCR test with a couple changes. They think they can do 45 minutes, but still the problem is you got to collect all these samples. They're doing uh, saliva, and kids are going to have to get in line or stay in the or They're going to have people come by and collect the samples. There's no practical way to do it. What we're trying to do is to say you can get these little plastic cassettes, which basically hold a piece of paper, and when you go through this process of spitting and pouring in this little this little tray thing, like a pregnancy test again, um, you're going to get a result really soon. And in terms of creating a bubble that says, look, when we're all on campus, we've all been tested, we're all clean, we think that's how you're going to create a bubble and eventually create a much bigger bubble in the state of Hawaii. And what we're looking at doing is 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 a kind of an experiment, if you will, with Hawaii to make Hawaii a big bubble, kind of like what NBA is doing in, in Orlando. And we think the way to do that is to get rapid, inexpensive tests that are very specific and accurate but produce results very fast and empower people to either, if it comes up positive, go call their doctor. And if it comes up negative, the chances of infecting people is extremely low. And so you can go about your life. You do this you test for five days, you're going to guarantee find it if you're going to if you're sick or not. But okay. if you want to reduce infectiousness in the community, if you do this with these bubbles and bubbles, you can drive infectiousness down to zero probably in three to four weeks. Okay, well, hold that thought because we got to take a break. <laughs> uh, for our listeners out there, uh, this is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Kozak. Uh, we are talking about COVID-19 research underwear in the islands, and we'd like to know what you think. Join the discussion by calling us at 941-3689 or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We continue our discussion about COVID-19 research after this short break. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort on Oahu with a message to stay safe and to protect one another and oneself, committed to the safety of ohana and community. Kahalaresort.com. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that make us a part of their communication strategy. Mahalo to Opera Maui, Bavarian Motor Experts, and the Hawaii Community Foundation. They believe, just as you do in the power of public radio, see a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, and Honolulu Waldorf School. You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Uh, you know, Dr. Kozak, uh, you know, I, I know we've had a number of uh, 
clinical trials, you know, underway here. I know we're hearing of Queens is involved in a number. Is uh, Hawaii Pacific Health involved in any of those at all? Well, I think there's a there's a lot of clinical trials that are being had. You mentioned by Queens. There's also one run by the medical school. And anybody who wants to be involved in clinical trials can talk to their provider, and we can connect them to resources. So you don't even have to go to the major medical centers. Your local provider can hopefully let you know what trials are out there that you could be enrolled in, because there are some vaccine trials as well. And I've seen some patients of mine who I'm getting notified are part of a vaccine trial already. And that took place even outside of my office. Office. So I think all the medical centers and, and all of the providers are really trying to keep up to date with what's out there as far as a trial, not just diagnostic, but also we're looking at even vaccine trials, particularly right here in the islands, because we've got a unique ethnic demographic mix. So we really want to make sure that people get information about that so that they can participate, because we want them to have their self, themselves represented in the na- nationwide trials that are being done. You know, uh, we did talk with uh, Dr. Um, uh, Vivek Nirakar uh, over at JABSM, the John A. Burns School of Medicine, about the different projects underway. Um, here's what he had to say about vaccines. At the University of Hawaii in here, uh, one of the solutions is the vaccines. And we have groups of people who are uh, very much uh, into it right now, and they have had some very good data. We are hoping that some of our vaccine-related data will be coming out pretty soon. Uh, and that can be used uh, because there's not only one kind of a vaccine, you can have various different vaccine platforms and some vaccines can complement other vaccines too. So that's one area which we want to really, really focus on here, here uh, at, the, at the medical school. So can you talk about that with the different types of vaccines? Well, that's the exciting part. When we think about how long it's taken vaccines to develop in other situations, you know, we think about the shingles vaccine or or other types of vaccines, even the yearly flu vaccine. When we're looking at trying to develop a vaccine, there's different variety of ways you can do it. You know, earlier in the show, we heard a little bit about a possible nasal spray vaccine. The influenza vaccination is usually an injection, but a couple of years ago, they had a nasal uh, solution that you would use as a vaccine. So we're looking at different types of vaccines, but there's RNA vaccines. We know that this is a particular virus that has RNA, so that's one area. There's also protein components that you can do in a vaccine, so part of the protein. So when we look at coronavirus, you can look at a lot of the pictures show those little projections that come out, which is how it got its name. And you you can have a vaccine to a protein part of the virus, hopefully helping to protect They're also looking at trying to develop vaccines that are recombinant or made in a lab that are not the actual virus particles, but that are part of the virus from what we can establish in a lab and create. The idea being that all of these different types of vaccines, the goal is that you're trying to create some type of immune response so that when your body encounters the virus, however you get exposed to it, that it can say, oh, we know this. This isn't something we want. We're going to attack it and kill it so that we don't have to worry about getting an infection from it. But we have to also think about the limitations. Even the flu shot every year, when it's a perfect match for the flu that's circulating in the community and the vaccine that we've given out to the population, there's still a percentage of people for whom they might get a larger exposure than their body can handle, or they might still get sick, but it's a milder case of it. 
And in that situation, we still recommend vaccination. We know that having a milder case of it may limit the spread to other people, also would limit the suffering of the individual. And so we have to look at when we consider developing a coronavirus shot, our expectations have to be that instead of a one and done shot, we're looking and a lot of companies are saying, you know, we might need to do a shot plus a booster in a few months, similar to what we see with Shingrix, the shot for shingles, you get one and within six months to a year, you get a booster. Or even looking at some of the genetic variations of coronavirus, they've done some studies of the genomics and found that the the virus in one area has mutated a little bit from another area, not enough to change the overall broad category, but enough that we want to make sure that whatever vaccine we develop can address those different issues. Because we may have a, a vaccine like the flu shot for a few years. You get it every year, there's a slight variation to it, or it boosts immunity. So I think the companies are doing some amazing things right now, coordinating and collaborating. These previous competitors are working together saying, hey, let's get this going for the whole entire world. There's certainly going to be enough business for everybody. There's billions of people on the planet. So if we think about mass vaccination, we need 10, 20, 30 companies to all throw their hat in the ring. And we may need different modalities. And over time, we may find that the injectin one works better in this form than it does if it were given as a nasal spray or vice versa. So this combination coordinated effort, I'll be honest, is one of the most exciting things about the scientific community right now. Yeah, there is this race that we're seeing with different countries, right? You've got the Russians with their Sputnik and, you know, China uh, looking at, at something. It, it's just, it is amazing all the, I guess, all the, the, the bright minds and the scientists that are, are just trying to find a solution. And sharing that learning. You know, we're seeing companies coordinate and collaborate that never would have done that before because they're they're really working on it. And when you think about the idea that if one person works on it from one angle and somebody else works on it from another, and then you can combine those efforts to come up with the third approach and somebody else takes that down further, it's almost like we're running a track race and everybody's passing the baton and eventually we're going to get to the finish line. But it's going to take a collaborative effort of everyone. And it's so exciting to see scientists from different communities do that. The medical literature that I'm reading is uh, fantastic just to see that exhibition of how everybody's working together and really just trying to say, hey, we've got an end goal. We all have the same goal. Let's get there together. And Patrick, so you're using a little different technology with this molecule that you've, you've created, and that's a little different approach than what some other companies are doing with the saliva test, right? Oh, absolutely. So what we've done is we've um We've invented, again, this a designer molecule. So it's a, a single-stranded DNA molecule with a specific purpose, and it operates in a very specific way. But the way to think about it is you don't even question the use of a 3D printer. And so this is like a 3D printer to print a molecule. So it doesn't require, you know, uh, when you produce antibodies, they come from animal sources, and they, they produce a thing called a hybridoma, which excels and and produces the antibodies so this is a totally different approach to that and when we were first looking at this in the beginning we thought we could do an antiviral um, uh, actually we looked at immunology we've been in discussions with uh, NIH on serology which is blood chemistry and ways to reconsider immunology which is why are some people more protective than others those are bigger science questions that are going to take time, but we thought we could do the test right away. And the nice thing about the test is 
it's a whole different modality to do this. So there isn't anybody doing anything like this. That's partly because we created these development tools here in Hawaii. Now what we're doing is we're trying to look at building 25,000 tests per day here in Hawaii. And then the plan is to get to uh, one to 20 million tests per day for the rest of the country and parts of the world. So we're basically, we call it Metascale Manufacturing. By the way, I talk about this in a book that um, I put out about, a, came out earlier this month called Intellectual Anarchy, the Art of Disruptive Innovation. You can get it on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and it's available in bookstores. But this talks about how we think at Oceanet and it's kind of a Hawaii-centric story about innovation and how to innovate from fundamental science to delivering products to impact humans and society. So in this particular case, we've gone from the fundamental science, things that almost sound science fiction-like, now we're in the weeds of the details to make it simple and usable for humans to impact society. Mm-hmm. And that's going on in real time right now. I mean, that's that's really exciting to think that, you know, hey, we've got this challenge and we're going to, we're going to think outside the box. You know, I know you're talking with Dr. Um, uh, Nurkar, right? You, you've been collaborating because he's got to make sure that, you know, his labs can accommodate what you folks are doing. Right. So what we've done is we've worked with him and his folks on a variety of things, but we're trying to do, um, we've been testing the heck out of it. So early testing, you know, we do it with or what you might consider inoperable viral material. So no one can get sick, you can order it, it comes through the mail, and labs around the world are using the same kind of material. Then you've got to move to live stuff, right? And you've got to have special facilities training and people, and that's why it's really great to have a medical center here, a medical school, and a lot of really bright, talented people. So it's it's a collaboration with the University of Hawaii, so we're very grateful for that. And it's been a great collaboration with Queens. We're grateful because we went through the IRB, the Institutional Review Board, which is to make sure that we're not going to harm anybody in a test, which I've done in the past with other spin-outs we've done, and they can take a lot of work. And as I was telling the guys early on, I'd rather get my teeth drilled. They did it very fast. And... Uh, have been awesome to work with. So what you've got is a community pulling together to get something done, and people working day and night across the board. But what we're trying to get to is to actually set up this medicine manufacturing right in Hawaii, an FDA-authorized facility to produce. Right now the goal is 25000 a day that we could then get to the different businesses from the airlines, the schools, restaurants, and that kind of thing. And I think the idea, if you have then different saliva tests, and if we have ours here in the islands, you know, then we're not kind of at the mercy of a shortage of a reagent, you know, like we saw in the past, right? Absolutely. See, we can literally synthesize things right here. And what it does, it also does a very important thing. It kind of changes the mindset from Hawaii to the world versus from the world to Hawaii, which I think is a mindset we need to consider if we want to create a more diverse economy be less dependent on tourism, which I know is another conversation. But, but I think it's an important one to consider in the future because we can do more to manage our future and, and create our destiny in Hawaii because there's very talented people that live right here. And it turns out geography is less and less an issue, so what's needed is education and imagination. And that's what we're bringing to bear right now. You know, I, I think 
you know, we've all lived here. We all know that sometimes the idea is, oh, if it's, it comes from the mainland or somewhere else, that it's better. But that's not necessarily so. That's definitely true, and I really appreciate Yeah, Patrick, the efforts that you're putting out there, absolutely. The idea that we could create a test that could go elsewhere is so exciting because we've all talked about, like you mentioned, diversifying the economy. But I think often we overlook the scientific expertise we have in our own backyard. And to hear that there's some great work going on right here with our hospitals, we're looking at trying to determine tests that will help us to manage how we deal with our own island population, let alone what we do when we start to open up to tourism from the mainland. If we can get it really well done here for our current population, we'll be in a much better position to be able to handle that for folks outside of the islands. But I'm just excited at the collaboration that you described. And I know a little too much about IRB committees having served on one. So you're right. You probably would want to have a tooth drilled. That would be an easier thing to do. But the idea is, again, that collaborative spirit, you know, the fact that everybody together is working on this to come up with a solution that we can fast track to really expedite the idea of getting people tested, getting results quickly. That's been one of the main drawbacks of all the testing we've done is, you know, what they say is do your test and then stay home until you get results and quarantine yourself. And that brings up that whole other solution, that question that people have. Do I quarantine myself? Do I quarantine my family? How do we walk the dog? How do we get groceries? What do we do? And all of these things are in some ways making people reluctant to get tested because they say, well, if I'm going to be better in a few days, then I don't know if I want to know because then I'm responsible for what to do. But then also there's the thought about just the daily inconveniences. What do you do if you don't know for a few days? And if you're turn out to be negative, then those few days you were at home and maybe you wanted to do something else. Getting those immediate results is going to be ideal and key. So the idea of getting, you know, your own home spit test that you could do, get the results pretty quickly, have it be sensitive enough to detect if you have the virus, then you know, stay home. This is a problem. Let me call my doctor. That's it. It shouldn't be what science fiction, but I could picture a day in the near future where I get up and before I go to work, I do my test. And then I know I'm safe. I go to work and everything is good. And I'm in the medical profession. So this could definitely help healthcare workers. But also I think about the folks who are taking care of people in nursing homes who they might be going not knowing that they're positive. Housekeepers who might be involved in and they might be positive from going to a workplace and then they spread it to other folks. That's where we're hearing about some of these clusters. Having this type of immediate test and having this way that they can get results and direct their behavior for that day is fantastic. I can't wait for that to happen. You know, and having gone through quarantine, you know, uh, yeah, you have lots of those just basic questions and, and a tool like this could really help. Uh, we had a caller on the line, a shy caller from Maui, um, you know, uh, Worried about the lack of support systems for people living on their own while trying to self-isolate. Uh, had a suggestion, why not utilize military ships for quarantine measures? You know, folks are just worried about, you know, how can we contain this virus? How do we make sure that people are, are, are doing the right thing? Well, and I know here on Oahu, they've a lot of the hotels have stepped up and said, if you can't self-quarantine or if you're a healthcare worker and you go home and you can't be isolated yourself, then let's establish, let's use some of these unused hotel rooms to allow people to use those and self-isolate and keep themselves in different locations than other people. So I know that on Oahu, we looked at that. 
And I'm certain the neighbor islands, they're also needing to look at that same aspect of helping people to self-isolate. We've got multi-generational families here. We've got spread in communities that tend to live in group environments. And that's where we really have to figure out some out-of-the-box creative solutions so that people can come up with a way to keep themselves and their, their, their whole household safe. So they're right, Maui, it's, it's difficult because particularly when you're in a rural area and you're in a household and there's five other people, how do you do it? You know, you may not have a safe way that offers to deliver food or, or a bite squad or a dine and dash or all those different types of variety of services. So we, we all need to get creative. And the one really unique thing I've seen is neighbors helping neighbors people helping others in their community. We've seen an outpouring of effort from a variety of different places where somebody posts, hey, I need to have somebody pick up groceries or medicine and somebody else takes that and runs with it and delivers it. And so those sorts of community efforts really do show the true aloha spirit that we're seeing come out in all different arenas. Okay, well, you are listening to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Today we're in the studio with HBR's Dr. Kathy Kozak and Patrick Sullivan, founder and CEO of Oceanit. About a week ago, uh, the company in Queens Medical Center started patient trials with Ocean Spit Test, the Assure 19 Rapid Point of Need COVID-19 test. You can join our discussion today by calling 1-877-941-3689. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from First Insurance Company of Hawaii, providers of auto, home, commercial, and specialty lines of insurance since 1911. First Insurance Company of Hawaii. F-I-C-O-H dot com. I'm Ira Plato. On the next Science Friday, a squid scientist dives into cephalopod behaviors, bacteria, and brains. They do have brains, and they're quite large. And also, fun fact, they're donut-shaped. More fun facts and answers to your cephalopod questions on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Starting this afternoon at 1. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. We've been talking about a number of different COVID trials getting underway here in the islands. And, you know, we spoke with Dr. David Fitzpatrick, who is leading the stage 2B3 trial out of East West Medical Research Institute. He gives us an idea of the kind of demographic that researchers are looking for when testing a COVID-19 vaccine. What we're looking for is basically two groups of people. One, who are at increased risk of getting the coronavirus because of their lifestyle, work factors. So this could be people who are working with other large groups of people, first responders, people in healthcare, people who regularly use public transport, either as a passenger or a worker, going shopping regularly, more than three times a week, going to religious services. Those all place people at increased risk. Then we're also looking for people who are at increased risk of developing COVID-19 if they get infected. So this would be people 65 and older, people with medical conditions such as diabetes, chronic kidney disease, 
people with heart conditions, asthma, high blood pressure is a risk factor, smokers, and then people in certain ethnic groups. So in Hawaii, that's Pacific Islanders. Um, certain aspects of the Filipino population are uh, at increased risk. Dr. Kozak, do you want to talk about why there's this need for diversity? Well, we have this unique experience here in the islands. We don't have a homogeneous population. And therefore, when we look at some of the trials that are done elsewhere, even in other countries, sometimes they don't reflect our population here in Hawaii. And they may not actually reflect anything more than a very homogeneous population in that particular country. So we've always had this unique ability as a state to provide some really interesting data results for some of the research that's done. And it just is a wide swath of the community of all different various ethnic backgrounds. One of the things I found really curious and interesting is that we're looking at certain communities where there's a higher risk. And we do know that Pacific Islanders have a higher risk of developing coronavirus based on here in Hawaii. But if you take a look at the countries who don't have any COVID, Micronesia and the Marshall Islands are on the list, in addition to Samoa. So when they are in their own country, that particular ethnic group does not seem to have, at least we haven't seen spread to those locations. There's something about having them here in the islands that is putting them at an additional risk. So one of the things that I know is happening now as we speak is outreach specifically to those communities to say, we need to bring you resources. And sometimes it's masks and it's sanitizer and often it's it's language-specific educational materials so that they, who, if English is not something that you can read readily, we need to get it in, get the instructions available in a language that you can share with your community as well. So they are making some efforts to really educate populations. And it's, it's, it's really just, it's a medical fact. Certain people are greater, have a greater susceptibility, and we need to address that in a way that is equal and effective for the whole entire community. If there's one thing we've learned through coronavirus, it's that what happens in other countries and around the world directly affects what happens here at home. And in fact, what happens in your community, down the street, the people who work at the grocery store, the people who provide delivery services, it's it's anybody who works at fast food, everybody together, their, their behavior impacts the rest of everyone else. And if we, need, if we ever needed to learn that lesson, I think this has been an experience where we can say we see the direct impact, and it does. And Patrick, can you talk about how people can take part in your trials? I'm not real sure, you know, do you just go over to Queens to, to spit in a, in a tube or what? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what what we're doing is we're trying to uh, the objectivity of working with Queens has been really uh, helpful because people can come in there and they make an assessment, but then they ask if they're interested in enrolling in the in the program. And but then we've we've added other elements. Uh, for example, uh, the fire department wants to participate. And we said, that's awesome. So we're, we're kind of doing it with Queens so that there's a standard process applied to produce the results. Because what we're trying to do is to make sure that when this gets to the rest of the country, you know, it's safe and effective, right? It does exactly what it's supposed to, when it's supposed to, and it works for everybody. And so we're trying to find, you know, what are the things we haven't thought about? We're also trying to validate the sensitivity and specificity so that we are on a standard 
par with whatever FDA says we need to do. And we've been in discussion with FDA for the last, gosh, at least a few months. Uh, we've now, because we're part of this, uh, what's called RADx, or it's kind of a version of uh, healthcare research and the apprentice, and it's this rapid program. So we were one of thousands of applicants, but we've been we're kind of unique in what we're doing, and so they basically have. Uh, Kind of hotwired the process as well because we're now considered to be high priority and something they want to go fast. FDA says, you know, when you're ready, we'll turn this in 72 hours. So we're literally in a discussion on the kind of data, the kind of labeling that's needed, especially for an over-the-counter type of test, right? So that anybody anywhere can use it. So a lot of little details, as you know, I was saying earlier, you've got the the blue zone, the green zone, blue zone, deep science, green zone, humans and society connected through the rock and roll zone. And that's kind of where we are now, It's the rock and roll zone. All the things we didn't think about, like today a question came from FDA, what if somebody leaves it in a car, it's 110 in, you know, Phoenix or something? Well, I don't know. I never thought of that. Well, guess what? We're going to probably do a test on that. And there's a lot of these little details that got to get ironed out. All stuff we can do. The magic we brought to this for the science is unbelievable. But this next piece, to make it usable for anybody anywhere, non-trivial. And we're saying earlier, I talked about it a little bit in the book, this idea of human-centered design. We kind of pioneered a lot of this at Stanford with design thinking. We started running the boot camps here for the schools, K-12, to to get the kids and the community involved in innovation, creating a common language. And we do the same thing inside OceanX a language of innovation. So it's not just the science, it's how do we impact humans and society? And it's a tool set we use to do that. We're in the middle of doing that, but it is clearly, when I say the rock and roll zone, you know, it's kind of crazy sometimes. You know, and I know there are uh, a number of uh, research projects out there that are dealing with uh, the plasma, the antibodies. Yeah, there's been some interesting information about the use of antibodies. I know that there's a little bit of a controversy earlier in the week or in the last couple of weeks or so, but the Mayo Clinic did a trial looking at using convalescent plasma to try and treat people who have coronavirus. And what they found is that the earlier in the treatment course, the better the results. So if you can start somebody on that treatment within the first four days of infection, that's much more effective than if it's after that four days. And it may actually change the trajectory of their response to the infection. So we are seeing that there are some unique things. You know, convalescent plasma has been around for a long time. This has been used for a variety of different infections over the course of medical history. But the idea is that they're now looking and saying, does it work for people in the hospital? And if it does, when is it most appropriate to be given? There's always going to be questions. What's the dose? What's the interval? How much differences in plasma and the ability to have antibodies from other people? But we're fast-forwarding the science to try and really get the specifics on using our current mode of what would be considered to be randomized, double-blinded trials and getting what we call the gold standard. We're using those things, but we're kind of making it a real-world scenario. So we're doing those trials right now. And in fact, there are there's hospitals now are giving convalescent plasma to patients because at this point, we're very limited in our therapeutics. There's remdesivir, there are some other treatments with steroids that are available and convalescent plasma. And if someone comes in really sick, we're gonna give them a little bit of everything to see if we can get them better. And we may not wait to see which one did the most 
benefit for them, but we want to save lives. So there is a real world scenario that we have to look at. And so far, some of the plasma information that has come out has shown some potential beneficial effect, but it does have to deal with timing, as we might expect. The earlier in an infection that you have any kind of therapeutics, the better long term. And I know early on, the uh, blood bank of Hawaii was kind of the go-to place uh, because they're set up, you know, to, to do blood and plasma. Uh, but then also at uh, the uh, at Jabson, at the medical school, they've got projects over there. I, I was curious. I didn't realize that, that some uh, places pay people to donate. I think there are some. For certain types of donations, standard blood donation is usually done for free from the patient. But as you get into the more specific blood components, there may be a financial remuneration for it. I think in this case, when we're dealing with a worldwide pandemic, uh, the idea is if you have somebody who truly has had a bad infection and recovered and something helped them to recover, the idea of giving back and saying, I want to help the next person to recover, because you don't know if that's going to be your family member or your neighbor or who else it could be. So that idea sort of says, if you've had an infection and you can donate plasma, call the blood bank and find out if there are some opportunities for you to assist. Because how you got to the point where you recovered is the combined effort of a lot of individuals that are working hard to make that happen. And how you can give give back or pay it forward is a wonderful way to use what you've been given, which is this, this lifetime, having had the infection and recovered. And, and that's a way to help the next person along the line. We had another call, uh, a shy caller, not on the line anymore, uh, but uh, they've heard about promising things about using ivermectin to treat COVID by Australian physicians. And uh, our listener was wondering what the guests knew or thought about this treatment. You familiar with that? Well, that's interesting because ivermectin is usually used for things like, dare I say it, pinworms and other types of worm infections, parasite infections. Uh, we're, they're trying a variety of different different treatments for people who have coronavirus. And, you know, some of the information coming out of Australia is interesting. We've had other people talk, you know, there was always the controversy on hydroxychloroquine and what are some of these other treatment modalities. The idea of this being a novel coronavirus is that this is new to both the scientists, to the physicians, to the researchers, to the pharmaceutical companies, to everybody. It's new. We're learning on the fly. And what works in one scenario might need to be tested in another and to see if there is any benefit. But currently, right now, what we do know that has helped people is if you're very symptomatic and you can't breathe and your oxygen levels are low, you need medical attention. And that medical attention may be oxygen. That may be hospitalization. You may need IV fluids to keep your body supported if you're not eating. There may be some medications. Remdesivir is given often. Steroids can be given often because of the positive benefits we've seen in reducing the type of reaction that the lung has to this infection. Prone positioning, laying flat on your stomach has been shown to be helpful. But there's a variety of different other treatments out there. Some studies say they're great and other studies say not so much. We're trying everything because we don't have a tried and true treatment that we know will succeed 100% of the time. So whether it be ivermectin or whether it be another medication that's coming down the pike, we're just trying because this is novel. And the one thing I would say is people are going out there on a limb and doing something to try their best to deal with a very difficult situation, whether it be the medical professions or even in the politicians. Everybody's trying their best. Everyone has the same goal in mind. Protect the community. Make sure that everybody survives this in all aspects, whether it be the economy or physically or medically or jobs in any way. And we all have the same end goal. So 
having a little bit of compassion for one another as we struggle through this is really something that I would implore everybody to have because, you know, it's it's not the time to go fighting. It's not the time to start saying he, sh- he said, she said, uh, and, and blame other people. It's the time to say, hey, we've got to work on this together. And collectively, we can do better than any one of us could do on our own. And Patrick, you've got about two minutes. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I know. I appreciate those comments, Kathy, because I wholeheartedly agree. And I think what's needed is we all got to sort of paddle in the canoe together. So it's not just science, but it's the, it's the healthcare providers, it's the delivery infrastructure, it's also the policies, you know, coming out of. Uh, uh, normally, you'd get a lot of direction from uh, places like CDC, but there's been a lot of confusing messages. And so I think it's it's incumbent, it's, it's important for the uh, our elected officials to get out in front. You see some states, you know, getting more and more comfortable with this because the, we're responsible for ourselves. It is a novel coronavirus. It, it spreads unbelievably fast. And waiting for instructions from headquarters ain't going to happen. So I think what we need to do is get in front of it here, apply science, create good policies, and actually execute. And I think if we do that, we can get this under control. We can turn the economy around. We can have a great community to live in to visit. All right. And hats off to you for the, for the innovation. Uh, any final thoughts, Dr. Kozak? Well, if people have questions about trials, talk to your providers because we should hopefully have a have a way to find out what's available out there. And uh, if if I do get a comprehensive list, I'll share it with you, Catherine, so you can share it with all the listeners because that's that's an evolving thing. It's dynamic. Things are changing, and there's new trials coming about. But talk to your doc. They should be able to at least direct you in the right place to find out more information. Oh, I should mention that the University of Hawaii is hosting a COVID-19 webinar next week, which is Wednesday from 12 to 1. They're going to talk about vaccine development, antibody testing, contact tracers. Uh, It's sponsored by the Hawaii Immunization Coalition, Hawaii Pacific Health, uh, and the UH Manoa Department of Tropical Medicine. Uh, And I should note that if there are doctors, nurses, and social workers who attend the webinar, you can apparently receive professional development credit for this. So you can check our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, to find links. Again, we'd like to thank Dr. Kozak, uh, Dr. Uh, Patrick Sullivan, Oceanet founder and CEO. And we'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us on today's show. Any thoughts about our discussion? Contact the Talkback line. Leave your comments. That number, 808-792-8217. You can also send us an email at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to today's show, check out the conversation podcast at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday for more of the conversation.